Open finance could define the future of financial services. That's why 11FS and Plaid have joined forces in creating a report to explore it in greater depth, scrutinizing the lessons learned from open banking and outlining key policy considerations for its implementation. We also consider the impact of financial service providers and the potential benefits to consumers. You can download the report for free at bit.ly forward slash open finance 2020. That's bit.ly forward slash open finance 2020. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you Goldman Sachs teams up with another tech giant as it launches credit lines on Amazon. Monzo raise funding but lose valuation. And WhatsApp launches payments in Brazil. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 437 of Fintech Insider. I'm Simon Taylor and joined today by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Jason Bates. How are you doing, Jason? I'm very well, thank you, Simon. How are you? Good, good. Uh, a little late for the podcast today, running around but having fun. Um, but the good news is we're, we're not alone, Jason. We are joined by some incredible guests, all making some welcome returns uh, to Fintech Insider News. We have the one and only Gemma Godfrey, who's business advisor and fintech entrepreneur extraordinaire. How are you doing, Gemma? I'm doing very well, and I'm honored to be on the show today. Um, we're honored to have you back. And as well, we're honored to have the one and only Freddie Kelly, who's CEO at Credit Kudos. Freddie, how are you doing, sir? I'm very good. Thank you. I'm very good. Good to be back. Good to have you. And our last but by no means least is, of course, the other one and only uh, Lois Ollenshaw, who's Venture Principal at Nationwide. Lois, how are you doing? I'm really good. Thank you. Very pleased to be here. Good, good. Well, there is just too much fintech news to hold us back, so let's get started. Um, the first story this week we picked up on CNBC, but you probably couldn't move for seeing it. Uh, this is about Amazon unveiling a smart business credit line with Goldman in the latest tie-up between tech and Wall Street. So they're launching this new digital credit line for U.S. merchants with Goldman. Small business owners who sell items on Amazon's giant platform will soon be receiving uh, targeted innovation, uh, invitations even from Goldman's Marcus brand for revolving credit lines of up to a million US dollars. The credit lines will come with a fixed annual interest rate of 6.99% to 20.99% and can be drawn and repaid like a regular credit card. This is the first time Amazon will let a financial institution make the underwriting decisions for hundreds of thousands of sellers on its platforms. If the sellers consent to it, Goldman will use the data on businesses' revenue and tenure on the e-commerce platform to help determine who should be approved, and Amazon will not have access to that data. This application process is fully digital and can be done in minutes, and most customers will get approved uh, results in real time. The credit line runs on a two-week cycle, and if users don't get to make minimum payments on time, they'll owe late fees. They'll also pay a maintenance fee if they don't use at least 30% of that credit line. Um, Jason, I'm going to throw it to you first. Um, big tech is uh, is getting together here with uh, old tech, uh, with, with old finance. What, what's happening? What were your thoughts when you saw this? Well, it's a it's a story about Goldman Sachs, really, isn't it? I mean, they've uh, they've made their play with Apple. They're now into Amazon as a global financial player with not a retail presence but a global consumer brand. They're super well placed in order to to actually um, 
get distribution by creating these uh, these mega partnerships. So I think it's super smart. It's smart for Amazon because they bring liquidity to their supply chains, to their sellers. They uh, they let people expand and drive their business. It's, it's smart for Goldman. They get instantly access to millions of customers and the data that makes small business lending always super difficult to uh, to deliver against. So um, yeah, I, I don't see what's, what's wrong. Very little downside. Um, what are the other thoughts of this, Lois? What did you think when you saw it? Well, I got deja vu when I read it. I was like, hang on a minute, this happened before. Um, and it turns out, funnily enough, the last time I was on um, on this podcast in February, this was the lead story then too. So it was founded. How weird is that? Um, anyway, at the time, I think it was a bit of a rumor, but we talked about it as if it was true because it's so logical. You know, we talked about Goldman's being on the offensive rather than the defensive. And all of those things, I think, you know, are still true today. Um, and, you know, I think it's just, it's an, it's an impressive move. The diversification that Goldman's are undergoing is, um, I, I think, something to keep an eye on. To that point, um, and David Solomon, who's the CEO of Goldman, said in January that they hope to become a bank as a service provider for big corporations. I mean, Gemma, what are your thoughts on this term bank as a service? It's this term that's thrown around. What does it actually mean? It's a really interesting term. And I think what we're seeing is just the growing a catalyst of a trend that we've already been seeing for years, which is banks trying to act as facilitators and being the engine rather than the car that people buy. So it's kind of like, what would you like to be as a business model? Do you want to be Intel? Do you want to be inside every computer? Or do you want to be outside doing that hard slog with a regulator on your back, trying to reach the retail customer, which they, you know, which doesn't necessarily trust them as a banking brand as much as they did before. So I think this trend is just a growing trend. And this absolutely makes sense. So the, the big disruptors that I think we were all worried about for years and years in financial services was always going to come from the big tech players. And you've seen that, and I know we're going to be discussing it later on the show in terms of Facebook launching payments via WhatsApp. Um, but ultimately, if you think about it, SMEs are like the lifeblood of our economy, right? But from a practical perspective, for the big behemoth financial institutions, it's always going to be hard to reach them, but the tech players can. So I just think this is a, a fantastic mashup. And I would hope to see more things like this, where you have, um, you know, smaller players with data on behavior and they can understand the demand and the big tech player and the big um, you know financial services players being able to also um, you know meet them in the middle to be able to share and ultimately help solve people's problems because that's what it should all be about here, here. I love the fact that you use the term mashup. Um, so credit for that. Um, and speaking of credit, I mean, um, when it comes to data and doing things a bit differently with the small businesses, I mean, Freddie, this is probably a subject near and dear to your heart with what you guys do at Credit Kudos. What were your thoughts from a data perspective? Do you think Amazon will uh, will have found it easy to let go of that data? And, and uh, what do you think Goldman is, is doing differently to say traditional credit scoring maybe? Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. And I, I mean, there's been so many conferences I've been to where this whole like, Will Gaffer, uh, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon become a bank? Um, narrative has been has been going throughout. Um, it, worth pointing out that Amazon has already had a crack at this, and and I, I think I remember reading it sort of fizzled out in in kind of twenty eighteen twenty nineteen where they were doing uh, their own lending. So you know I'd be interested to know if they'd tried and failed or whether this is just a new strategy. Um, but it's, it's yeah, the, the data is super interesting, and, it, and it's interesting that they're they're ring fencing it as well, and not you know they're saying quite explicitly they're not going to be able to access it, but Goldman will. Um, and and obviously you know there's already precedent here um, with Santander's collaboration um, with Asto and, and uh, eBay looking at 
like seller ratings. Uh, you know, they've got really good visibility of which products sell, like, you know, monthly turnover, all the stuff that, you know, is valuable, hugely valuable to, to underwriting those lending decisions. So, yeah, it, it's it's um, it's going to be uh, really, really powerful to, to, to Goldman to have that data. It's, it's probably also kind of an asymmetric relationship, because especially when you think about the context of, PSD2 open banking, you know, all of these big uh, retail players like Amazon, eBay, whatever can can access banking data, um, but there's there's no equivalent standard to go the other way. So so banks can't sort of start um, start lending without partnerships like this one. So that's really interesting too. Mm, going upstream in the data. I mean, Jason, if if you're um, not Goldman and you're not getting access to this data, because um, we know they. Um, Amazon's partnered with Wells Fargo to do customer loans. Uh, what would you be thinking? What would you be would you be looking to go try and get to eBay or whoever else? Or is there you know what are the lessons and insights from this type of partnership? Do you think? Well, I think uh, to build on Gemma's point, it depends on what layer you want to play. You know, we've got the rails at the bottom, whether that's Mastercard and Visa or Alipay or faster payments or whatever. We've got the financial product providers, the balance sheets, the the banking product experts. And then the services above that, and then you know end-to-end journey stuff around you know above, um, and and our clients and people we talk to, you know, really have to think about what layers they're best at and what layer they can play at, um, because the the better services have more customer context, which allows them to to price better and to deliver fundamentally a better service. So with a small business, how do you get you know more context? You integrate into into their main supply chain, their main value chain. You integrate into accounting packages and accounting uh, platforms. So there's more context there. So I think it's um, it's an interesting question as it's not everyone playing in the same area, but actually we're, we're going to find different specialists at different, different uh, layers rather than the bank that does the vertical integration of come to our branch, apply for one of our products and we're connected directly into all of the rails yes yes yeah the vertical integration to a bit more modular um i don't know if everybody saw in the past couple of weeks i think kodat um is a company that raised about 10 million and they do a lot in terms of connecting to accounting packages there's another one called pinwheel which connects to employee payroll and looks at that kind of data it feels like data about that customer and the apis around that space is becoming really really important but Gemma, do you think that these small businesses might be in a place of actually worrying about how much data they're giving away and being lent to without meaning to do these platforms have maybe too much power in some cases? That's actually a really interesting angle um, because I know that obviously whenever companies start out, they start off quite protective um, and, uh, and and there is a concern about how much they give away. But I think the more immediate need for small businesses is always about getting more customers and the more data that they get or share and the more insight they get, the better they're able to um, customise their products around needs and therefore get greater take up. So funnily enough, I actually think it's an interesting angle, especially especially with the, the more scrutiny we have and things like GDPR and people being more aware of where their data is going. So I think from a protection perspective, definitely. But from a sharing perspective, um, we, we're definitely we've definitely entered an era that where companies realise that you're stronger together, and the more that you can work together, the better the insights you can get, and the better. And, and ultimately, it's like it's like a, it used to be adapt or die, but I kind of feel like it's collaborate or die, you know, or, or let, get left behind really. So um, I think this is a really interesting time. But actually, I don't think it's so, it's so good for the ones out there that are too protectionist about it. Here, here. Um, I nearly quoted Vanilla Ice and said, stop, uh, collaborate and listen, but I won't. <laughs> um, I'll just pretend that I was about to instead. Um, uh, uh, Freddie, I think you wanted to make a point. And then Jason? 
I was, I was just going to say, kind of echoing what Gemma said, but um, the, the, the timing's really interesting, right? And, and uh, you know, perhaps I don't want to be the first person to mention it in this episode, but, you know, there's been a lot of interest in how we lend to SMEs right now and how, you know, given all the, the economic changes that are going on, how, how we get better at making intelligent decisions. And, you know, for us, that's something we've been a massive focus with, with open data, open banking. Um, but this, you know, this unique and differentiated and, you know, to many ends, a proprietary data set that Goldman have got here is going to give them a massive advantage in, in making you know smart bets on, on companies there. Jason? Well, I was going to say, and I guess it started this way with large companies, which then led to the ratings agencies. So it's an interesting question as to, you know, does, does a standard and pause for SMEs arrive? Maybe, maybe this is in Freddie's future, um, where basically these data sets get brought together so that small businesses can then uh, you know, borrow from a variety of people, depending on whether they're AAA rated or, you know, do you get junk lending to, to SMEs that are that are uh, not worthy? Absolutely, Jason. Well, I'm going to move us to the next story because uh, fintech never sleeps. And uh, uh, this one came from Business Insider, quite somber news, really, that um, Challenger Bank Monzo has closed a $76 million funding round. At least they've got that round, um, but uh, at a 40% valuation drop. Um, so they raised $60 million sterling or $76 million uh, in US uh, and as it tries to rally against the economic impact of the pandemic. Uh, the fresh capital comes from new backers such as uh, Swiss Fund Reference Capital or Swiss Re, Vanderbilt university plus in existing investors like Y Combinator. Uh, the new funding brings the company's valuation down by 40%. Uh, their uh, prior valuation was ex- estimated to be around 2.5 billion. Uh, it's now closer to the 2018 levels of 1.6 billion US. Uh, investors indicated that the deal's timing was behind the drop in valuation, uh, which I think is an important point. Um, and it kicked off the year by publicizing its prospective US launch. The company's applied for a US banking license, which could take at least 18, uh, 12 to 18 months. And Blomfeld's stepping back from his role as CEO to become president and uh, kind of amid financial pressure during the pandemic. Uh, he also deferred his salary for a year. Um, so um, I guess, Lois, we've been looking at the uh, challenger banking space for quite some time. What was your what were your thoughts when you uh, when you saw this? Um, I think my, my initial thought was probably the same as yours. You just alluded to it. Um, at least they've raised the funds, right? They've They've shored up their resources um, and extended their runway. And I think that's a good thing to close that much money in this climate. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that a down round is a, is a particularly negative indicator at this point. I think we're going to see more of it. And it probably just so happens that Monzo were close to closing this round at a point when, um, unfortunately, this kind, of, um, this kind of fog descended on the market. But ultimately, I think it's the right thing. I think existing investors seem to have been pushing the company for some time towards some pretty significant changes. Um, It does seem to have just been a barrage of news about Monzo in the last few months, though. Um, I kind of hope they can catch a break soon. Yeah, fingers crossed. um, It certainly seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, Freddie, what were your thoughts when you saw this? Similar similar sentiment? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of agree with Lois and, and, you know, it's, I mean, when the public markets are going down, you know, it's hardly surprising that the venture capital rounds and valuations are, are following. Um, I thought there's some interesting moves. I know you've previously reported them closing the um, call center in Vegas and then opening an office in San Francisco. And I, I sort of wondered at the time whether that was 
you know, to be closer to Sandhill Road and closer to the VCs and, you know, YC, you mentioned being an investor. Um, but, you know, I, overall, I don't think it's a negative for the for the bank. You know, it could even be a positive as, as you know, these sort of troubling times force force companies to really, really focus down on their their core, you know, their core proposition, their core metrics. And, you know, I'm sure it, it's extended the plan and, and changed the, you know, the timeline for, for sort of banking domination or whatever the big picture looks like. But, you know, I don't think it's necessarily as bad as, as perhaps some are making out. Yeah, indeed. Well, I mean, I think a lot of the, the blue chip bank stocks are still down 40% from their um, pre-pandemic um, positions. So again, this is aligned to public markets, as you say. And I think that's a really important point. Uh, Jason, you, you had a point there? Yeah, I mean, I saw today that I thought I see there was a tweet from Ryan Brown at CNBC saying he's told that Monzo now has $220 million in liquid capital. Um, and I think we have to remember that uh, that Monzo's a bank. So ultimately, it does have caps and liquidity requirements. And I, I don't remember the uh, the exact figures, but it but it needs something like a year's worth of uh, of money in the bank at all times in order to keep going, never mind the lending it that it wants to do. So I think unlike some types of startups, uh, banks are a very special case where, especially if you're growing, uh, you, can, you often need just a bigger balance sheet. Uh, and if you're growing in customers as well as trying to invest in, in building new capabilities and taking on new territories, that's a, that's a hungry beast. Yeah, as an organization, banks have that challenge, don't they, um, it, it, across the entire industry. Um, Gemma, I'm interested in your perspective as, as kind of a commentator looking at this. Do, how much has the media narrative changed from like, uh, oh, look at these exciting, shiny fintechs, but they'll go away? Is there a bit of glee in the sort of reporting of some of this? Or are we just being um, cynical fintechers over here in seeing that, do you think? Oh, I mean, you know what? I wouldn't even say it's um, so focused on just fintechs. I mean, us as the British public tend to quite like to build people up and then tear them down again. So, you know, you have a poster child, a disruptor, you get all excited. And then actually when it's doing a little bit too well, you kind of, people have schadenfreude, they kind of have glee putting it down. But I just think, I think if we actually just move away from, as you said, any, any negativity, because I agree with you, you know, running a business is incredibly hard. And, you know, running a business through times like this, um, you know, with the amount of uncertainty there is, again, is unbelievably hard. I, I Just to look at the silver lining here, I don't necessarily think this is such a bad thing that we're talking about. Um, that we're talking about how potentially continuing to raise valuations higher might not be the best thing. And actually, it's, it's healthy to see a move away from that, because ultimately, you will just have higher targets on your head, on your back. Um, it also might not solve your business model problem, especially if you're looking for things like distribution. And it also, the higher the valuation, the more uh, potential strategic investors and st- strategic backers that could help solve your problems with customers, etc. that you're ruling out. So, so yeah, I, I, I do agree with you that there is you know i think when when the press you know we want to you know are looking for are looking for things to report on you know it's always good to, to to pull down a poster child but in saying that i don't think this is necessarily such a bad story i think this is a story about a company doing the right thing a company taking things seriously uh, being still being able to raise capital in this environment which is positive and and also maybe just you know spurring up a conversation around valuation chasing might not be the the right thing for every entrepreneur either Interesting. Um, Freddie, is there a bit of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger as well? I guess there's um, th- there's always a yeah, but when people mention fintech, it's like, yeah, but it's only a prepaid card. Yeah, but it's only, yeah, but it's only, yeah, but it's not profitable. And and is there something here about people love the yeah, but, or is there something about um, this, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger or lessons being learned that, that maybe this is a, maybe this is a useful like teenage phase for, for an organization to go through? Yeah. 
I, I, I agree with, you know, the, the building people up and, and knocking them down point, you know, I, I do, and, and I don't know if it's especially Monzo, but I do sense that that's there. And especially with the, um, the role change for Tom Blomfield, like I, I think a lot of people don't give credit to the fact that, you know, being at a directorship or a CEO position of a regulated entity, let alone a bank, you know, entails huge reporting requirements, governance requirements that, you know, perhaps arguably don't put you in the best position to kind of run innovation and look forward. And so, you know, I think a lot of people read into that, that role switch in quite a negative way, which perhaps wasn't fair. Um, But yeah, you know, same, same thing applies. Like, you know, a, no one could have ever, you know, planned or forecasted a coronavirus pandemic. So, you know, all bets are off to that end. And I think, you know, this is just a fair adjustment and probably one that, you know, reminds us that, you know, not everyone's immune and that, you know, we're all working towards a longer term plan. And, you know, it's, it's good that they've raised investment to do that. Oh, yeah, it's it's interesting the point there about um, people playing to their strengths as individuals, right? What the person that can build the company and that's great at product might not be the best for dealing with regulators. And actually, uh, is there an opportunity to be really good at the the product side and and what helped something succeed at the beginning um, by putting different people into the organization at, at different times? Uh, Lois, I'm going to offer you uh, last word on this one. Where do you think this kind of goes? This story goes next, and or where do you hope it goes? Mm, where do I hope it goes? Um... Well, I just want to pick up on something Freddie said, actually. I think the point he made around showing that no one is immune to this uh, situation that we find ourselves in is really important. I think fintech can often feel as though it is slightly immune to these kind of things, particularly in London. Um, and, you know, we've already seen some kind of um, some some stuff in the press that seems to suggest that and says, you know, don't worry, fintech's going to be fine. We're going to bounce back. It's still really important. And I'm not saying those things aren't true, but I do think that there's value in in having a bit of a reality check and just saying, you know, the bar is already really high for things like, let's say, venture capital investment. It's becoming even higher. Um, and I think that everyone just has to step up their game. And I think, I suppose that comes around in terms of your question, I think Monzo will do that. I think they've proven pretty consistently that they're capable of doing that um, and and so, yeah, I guess going straight back to what I said at the beginning, I think I think they deserve a bit of a break. And I think from the changes that they've been making, things the outlook looks pretty positive for them. You heard it here first, people. Leave Monzo alone. It's like the Britney meme all over again. Um, yeah, so I get my shower curtain. <laughs> yeah, I definitely do that. Um, it, right, either we, that or it's like a Katie Price thing where Monzo will put on weight and then get take off weight and then find, find a suitor and, you know. Maybe the, maybe this is the new fintech media strategy. You take the Katie Price. Yeah, uh, fintechs are celebrities. There's there's some con- social content that we need to get onto our media team about. That that will work at the next After Dark. That's sure. Which celebrity is Monza? Which one's Revolut? Yeah. Oh wow. Uh, there's a can of worms. Uh, all right. Uh, we shall be back shortly. Let's take a quick break as we tell you all about our sponsors. We are truly in uncharted waters. Looking to us for guidance. Nothing is more important than building trust right now. This will be the new normal. How can I help? Hear that? That's the sound of change. Right now, business leaders are rethinking, reassessing, and repurposing business as usual to deal with this new crisis. It's a global conversation Salesforce is having called Leading Through Change. And it's all about businesses working together to achieve one simple goal, help. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Learn more at salesforce.com backslash leading through change. 
This podcast is brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the world's largest global platform of interconnected data centers, enabling fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of over 200 data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers the mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinex.co.uk. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance levels, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. You can discover more at mytechsystems.com. Okay, back to the new show where we're going to take a look at some new product launches at home and around the world. Stripe takes on big rivals with UK Direct Debit launch. Uh, So with the addition of Direct Debit, Stripe is one step closer to becoming an all-in-one payment solution for merchants uh, and has another differentiator versus rivals like Checkout.com. Users can now build direct debits into their own payment flows all by using Stripe Checkout. They can skip over the design requirements and lengthy approval processes of building their own direct debits platform uh, and uh, be set up to accept payments in minutes. Businesses can now easily accept one of the UK's most trusted payments methods entirely online uh, and in the same platform that they're using for digital card wallets and payments. We spoke to Stripe EMEA business lead, Matt Henderson, to tell us more. Hi, it's Matt from Stripe. We're making Bax Direct Debits publicly available on Stripe. Our work with Bax brings a deeply trusted 50-year-old payment method online. Alongside cards, digital wallets, and all the other payment methods, we make seamlessly available. Bax is open to Stripe users in the UK and integrates with all our available products here. In the UK, Bax Direct Debits is hugely popular. Nine in 10 UK consumers use direct debits to pay their bills. Any listeners would most likely recognize the paper form that you fill in and send off to set up a mandate. But that's precisely the point. Direct debits is an offline payment method that hasn't transitioned online as smoothly as paying by card. Businesses that want to accept direct debits have to either submit to the pen and paper approach or integrate a completely different system than what they're using for cards, Apple Pay, Klarna, and the rest. So Stripe is bringing direct debits online right alongside those other payment methods and, of course, giving it the Stripe treatment, making it easy to integrate, simple to manage, and available to all UK merchants. In fact, Stripe users can get set up to start accepting direct debits in minutes. This launch is best understood in the context of some pretty rapid momentum we've built up in Europe. We launched in five new European markets just a couple of weeks back, And we've added other European payment methods to our Payment Intense API, like Ideal in the Netherlands and P24 in Poland just after that. We are very much doubling down on Europe. Thanks. Matt Henderson, I'll have some of what you're having, sir. That was uh, that was fantastic. Thank you. Um, I guess uh, Lois Stripe have been around for some time. Uh, we know Go Cardless have been around for some time. Um, do you think uh, this kind of whole space is going to get uh, heated up? And do you think Stripe is well positioned? I think Stripe is really well positioned. You know, as a brand, I think they are eminently interesting. Um, and I know, I mean, I don't know if I personally find direct debits quite as exciting as <laughs> as some people do, um, but apparently they are very popular. So I suppose it's a good thing that, that Stripe are taking those on. Overall, I think Stripe's ecosystem is shaping up really nicely. I think, you know, um, the only thing that springs to mind is, 
the FCA's uh, recent guidelines around request to pay functionality and whether that might eventually sort of overtake direct debits. But I suppose that's a, that's a longer term narrative and Stripe are making great inroads for the short term. I think that's a great question, Lois. Um, Jason, I mean, what do you think about that? Account-to-account payments with TrueLayer, we covered a couple of weeks ago. Um, the UK government's now starting to get into account-to-account payments, and that could be huge. Um, has Stripe kind of gone towards the, you know, skate to where the puck is what, rather than where it's going, or do you think there'll be real demand for this? Well, well, you know, I mean, we've been talking to clients about what will the new constellations of financial services be if we've gone from big banks and building societies, insurers. And but and now we're looking toward to a place where actually the services that belong together are together for end consumers. One of those areas is day-to-day financial management, a la Monzo, Revolut, all of those things. But one of those areas is definitely the uh, uh, payment, insurance, escrow, uh, direct debits, whatever, at the point of need, at the retailer. So Klarna, Stripe, all of those players arguably have to offer the constellation of services around that. If I go and buy something expensive, I want to pay for it in installments. I want it insured. Um, I may pay for those installments by, or, or pay for the ongoing service by direct debit. So all of those things definitely live together. And the better you are at doing that with a you know single login and the ability to manage the how much have I committed to the, this variety of, uh, of providers and things that I'm buying on credit, then the better. So, uh, so whether it's Stripe or Klarna or someone else, I think that they're the center of gravity for this kind of thing. And suddenly it makes GoCardless, uh, you know, vulnerable because unless GoCardless start taking on payments and escrow and everything else, you know, is that more of a feature and less of a business now? And I think that would, that would be what would worry me, uh, you know, if I was uh, in GoCardless. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm open to other views on this. Um, Freddie, you're close to the world of uh, open banking, and I guess account-to-account payments has, has been something that's been talked about for quite some time. Does that compete with this? Is it complementary? And, and to Lois's point about requests to pay, how do, you, how do you see that playing out? I wonder if Stripe is like a more the merrier type of uh, player, as, as Jason was saying there, where it, it just kind of offers everything for, for your context, or maybe they've made a backward step here and account to account from TrueLayer might be might be the way things are going. Yeah, this is like the true fintech geek story. I think there's like so much to dig into, even though probably no one really cares about direct debits. I, I thought it was interesting that the uh, cutaway mentioned like direct debits being the most popular payment method. I, I'd sort of query whether it's the most popular or just the one that we're using because it's the, the you know the existing incumbent way of doing payments rather than sort of being by choice um and and yeah the point you make around psd2 open banking you know potentially uh you know being the, the sort of next version of that that you know almost sort of removes the need to kind of reverse engineer what is a, an archaic system is really interesting i know that um stripe is uh, you know, partnered with with Plaid in the US over something similar with ACH payments, where they're sort of automating what is like a really really old system to make it smoother with with an authentication system bundled in. Um, I, I think it's you know the the market share and, and sort of grasp that GoCardless has is is not to be underestimated. You know that this is a really sticky product, and the, you know the pain point of integrating it, it is pretty uh, pretty significant. And, and you know it's it's all around subscription based businesses as well. You know things that that pay monthly and people sort of you know, needs to, to not have that like high touch authentication process. It, it will be interesting to see how um, integration partners play into this. So for example, like 
zero, you know, you can integrate Stripe, you can integrate Go Cardless both pretty easily. You know, will, will that become the battleground for for who wins the kind of the the, the direct debit or equivalent subscription payments? Uh, we'll have to see. But yeah, there, there's a lot of like crossover and cross pollination between the systems, and I think it will be really like who owns the verticals and how if you know Stripe has a good critical mass of, of subscription-based businesses, whether they can transition them to using this product. Mm, interesting. Uh, Gemma, zooming out a little bit, um, Stripe are one of the largest independently held businesses in the world. They're like $36 billion valuation. Um, they enable Shopify, who are absolutely enormous. Um, Shopify announced a partnership with Walmart. It's kind of linking back to that Amazon story. You've kind of got this Amazon versus everybody else, and Shopify is the everybody else with Stripe underneath it kind of thing happening. Where do you see these constellations kind of moving when it's, um, you know, Stripe uh, are in this interesting position of push payments. Are uh, merchants, are businesses going to want this push payment thing? Is it going to solve a real problem for them? Uh, Should Amazon be doing something in push payments? And how real do you think all of that push payment conversation is for a merchant, for people on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting because um, what you've also highlighted is, as you said, the, the the leader out there, whatever, which is being driven by consumer demand. It's driven by either demand from the businesses or demand from consumers. And again, when we're talking about all these different tie-ups, when we talk about and they're and they're you know they're, they're linked into Walmart, which has the ultimate customer data, which is being driven by real customers. That's you know that that's been the utopia. So I think in terms of businesses and their growth, what they need is in order to grow is either new customers or a greater share of wallet from existing customers. And as you said, either by offering new services, by saying, right, you can do direct debits as well as direct payments or whatever it is, just by offering more. Um, But interestingly, I think the final frontier um, that shouldn't be underestimated in this are all the different nuances around um, either regulation or different consumer habits. So um, you can have, again, it can be quite frustrating being a, a tech entrepreneur where you can have the best technology out there but there are so many other elements that you need in order to be successful, which is really, you know, being able to tap into the right distribution model that's out there. So I completely agree with how you're positioning it, which is by saying um, about constellations or we talked about, you know, collaboration. You know, you need those those various elements. Um, and that's what's really going to be driving the success and the future of these companies are the ones that can really uh, not follow through on their own, but be able to tap into it by leveraging experts in different areas as well. Jason, those contexts keep coming up and there's different providers kind of in the middle of that. And then there's different license holders kind of beneath that. And, uh, you know, how how can people understand context better and and kind of understand that space? Do you think there's um, an understanding of that in the market? Do you think people uh, can go on that journey more or are people still very much in this, like, uh, I have to own and distribute it and and kind of think in the financial product? What are you seeing? Well, I guess we've gone through that, you know, the great unbundling, that classic slide of Citibank or HSBC, where lots of little fintechs are, are offering the individual piece. And uh, and I think the, the big question has always been, you know, does the provider that just does direct debits or the provider that just does a pocket money card, will they ever survive on their own? And the answer is no. Like uh, in the long term, that has to be a beachhead that then aggregates services together. And the question is, well, what are the centers of gravity that then aggregate those services becomes the interesting one. How many of these things are there? You know, we talk about social networks a lot and the fact there isn't like one dominant one. We've got Facebook, we've got LinkedIn, we've got Twitter, we've got, you know, a v- TikTok, a variety of different things that, that satisfy different um, different contexts. Bizarrely, I, uh, I was talking to the 
senior leadership team of the Canadian Bank who just made their first TikTok last week. They were pleased as punch. They were so happy with themselves. But um, so, so there's something about the fact that you know, LinkedIn is for that work context and all of the things around that. And uh, Facebook is for the sort of family and friends, Twitter's broadcast to the world. And so you get to financial services and you say, actually, if, we, if we've got unbundling where Revolut stops as a, as a travel card, but isn't aiming for, towards that, um, you know, they're going to start to, to eat the, um, the areas that other people are running business, businesses of, but are actually just features. So I think that this, um, this, uh, this place, this point of need, payments, insurance, uh, lending thing around retail, around payments and, and everything around that is going to be one of those contexts and going to, and some players are going to start to gain um, a, a critical mass where actually you'll just go with one of them because they offer everything and you're going with them because everyone else is with them. And therefore, customers now don't have to log in and put all of their details in because their details are already in there. So I think that there's this network effect thing, as well as this this um, gravitational pull of the companies that are successful starting to eat the uh, the planets nearby. What context do you own or what context do you enable? Stripe enables a number of contexts and I guess Klarna or somebody like that uh, owns the the checkout context in, in many examples. It's an interesting one to play with. Speaking of context, what about chat as a context? Um, so the next story is about WhatsApp, who finally launched payments uh, starting in Brazil. So story from TechCrunch, users in Brazil will be the first to be able to send and receive money by way of its uh, messaging app using Facebook Pay, the me- payment service uh, WhatsApp owner Facebook launched last year. WhatsApp says in a blog post that payments service will work by way of a six-digit PIN or fingerprint. It's free for consumers to use. That is, there's no commission fee taking, but businesses will pay a 3.99% processing fee for payment. That's nearly as bad as Apple tax. Um, You can use it by linking up your WhatsApp account to a Visa or MasterCard credit or debit card. Um, And uh, local partners include Banco de Brazil, New Bank, and Secreti. WhatsApp has amassed over 2 billion users, and it's finally taking a more comprehensive commercial plunge, giving people not just a place to chat about their product, but potentially do peer-to-peer. I'm going to throw this one to to you, Gemma. Um, We know that Facebook launched and then pulled sort of a payments product from uh, Messenger last year. They've been trying to do payments for a while. why Brazil? Why now? And do you think they're going to get it right this time? Well, the big contentious subject here is privacy. And obviously, Facebook came under a huge amount of scrutiny around uh, the type of data that they actually have. And people are going to get a bit more protective about it. And also, I, I find let's just take a Let's just all take a bit of a step back and think about the types of things that we send people in WhatsApp as well. And how comfortable we are then using that as a method to be interacting with businesses. So I think there's just some, some cultural and psychological things that, um, you know, uh, barriers that I think Facebook need to get people comfortable with. But ultimately, the reason why they're looking at the BRICS countries, you know, the emerging markets is because of growth. You know, it's another market. Secondly, uh, what, what, what companies have struggled with is the scrutiny around regulation and monopolies and things like that. And obviously, it tends to be slightly looser in these countries. So it's a much better testing ground. They've also got a bigger um, a bigger you know, user base out there to be able to test things with. But I think the challenge when you ask whether it's going to work or not is... Um, 
is that we're often, often these companies are lauded uh, for their, uh, we will get excited about their ability to break down, I guess I'd call it the, the final, the final frontier, you know, that global geographic barrier. And, um, and it seems just from an outside perspective, it seems like it would just be so easy to do, but it really underestimates the differences in regulation, the differences in consumer habits. Um, so on the one hand, from a business perspective, and again, I see that in loads of people that are pitching for investment and things like that, because, you know, of course, uh, they talk about the growth being global and it means huge efficiencies in terms of scalability. However, it just shouldn't be underestimated how, how difficult I think that that is. Now, of course, these tech players are already global. Um, you know, they're in a much stronger position. But when it comes to things that are regulated and we're talking about, you know, people's money, I just think that there are slightly more challenges along the way. That's a really good point. People are going to be concerned. And, and of course, we know that Facebook um, doesn't make nearly the ad revenue from emerging markets, even though most of their users are there compared to the US or even Europe. The US is far more lucrative for them than these emerging markets, whereas WeChat has a very different model and has proven that it can make commerce uh, a revenue generator for it in markets where advertising isn't really strong. Um, Jason, is, is chat a context? Is, uh, is WhatsApp payments going to take off? What do you think? I don't know. Like, um, I think it's interesting, you know, what Gemma was talking about in terms of the, you know, what do you use WhatsApp for? Like, does it really fit? You know, is it like your dad turning up to the school disco? It's like, whoa, hold on a minute. Like, you know, suddenly you've got the big retailer in the corner going, yeah, I can do the latest dance. Like, whoa. Um, so I'm not sure. Like, uh, platforms are more than just the technology because. You know, you know, the technology is there. Is it possible? It is. Should we do it? Mm, that's a more nuanced question because the, when people pick up WhatsApp, are they really in the, um, you know, in the the um, retailer sort of mindset or are they conversing with friends with those sort of off-the-cuff conversations? I'm not sure I see it from that, that sort of um, emotional tone thing or whatever you want to call it, the culture of, of that particular platform. Yeah, it, is it more a B to C thing than a the, well, sorry, a C to C thing, a consumer to consumer thing than a business to consumer thing? Uh, I think um, WhatsApp cited that actually a lot of people informally use WhatsApp as if it was sort of some IOU system in in a lot of these markets, so they're simply trying to add a service. So I think it it might be different in, in different markets, but again, you... well, well, that's and and that's a great point. I mean, you know, Venmo, Swish, Tiki, like. Uh, there are so many people who've made massive inroads into uh, into territories through peer-to-peer payments. And if you're talking peer-to-peer, kind of, yeah, WhatsApp might fit in that. But charging me 4% on, on paying money to a friend is never going to work. And, the, and the, the way that the sort of press release was written seemed a lot more in that sort of commerce aspect than actually just a way of connecting my bank account. So, hey, hey, dude, you owe me, you know, 20 quid for uh, uh for that meal last night bam there you go i've sent it but but it's not it's not packaged like that as fair freddie what were your thoughts yeah i think it's it's interesting as to whether this could become the bridge to uh, what you described with wechat where messenger is essentially the platform and you've got these really really integrated experiences where you've got you know entire app ecosystems and products and marketplaces all inside messenger and yeah i do think there's something perhaps culturally that that makes us feel that that's weird but then again you know i, I read um that whatsapp's overall traffic since the start of coronavirus it, it's grown like something like 40 percent. so I'm, I'm wondering if that you know push to everyone being on their phones more you know even more so than before might 
you know, give this a, you know, a chance at working. And especially as, you know, it's such an easy, uh, easy platform for this to spread, you know, if they roll it out in, in Brazil first, you know, that there's arguably not too much cost to then, to then put it across it, different geographies. I, I did read in the uh, press release that Mark Zuckerberg said something like, you know, there's a lot more coming soon. I don't know if that's just a generic press press statement thing that he ends with or whether that really means that you know they're, they're thinking about this as a wider ecosystem whenever he says that that's vaguely terrifying isn't it but again it's another one where there's partnerships of banks and in, in the background as Gemma says stop collaborate and listen uh well she, no, it was actually vanilla ice but um there's there's definitely something in that collaboration bank as a service who are the new providers the payments processes in the middle i think there is a payments processor not named here uh, which would be similar to a marketer or a synapse in the u.s that we've seen with gps in, in europe and many others uh, this this model that's starting to emerge where the, the unbundling has, has kind of gone in a few ways. Uh, Lois, um, final word on this before we move to the next story. What, what are your thoughts? I think the, the, the only point we haven't touched on so far is the kind of generational experience point. And, you know, I, I always think this kind of stuff deserves an open mind because we've already talked about TikTok Um uh, Snapchat has just released a load of cool stuff that I can't access because I deleted it because my cohort got rid of Snapchat <laughs> ages ago because none of us used it and now it's too late for me to go back. And it reminds me of um, it reminds me of that new story about Zelf, you know, the messenger messenger only. Mm-hmm. Um, bank. bank that's that's yeah everybody seems to be talking about zelf zelf.co if you've not seen it it's uh european it's a chat app only bank that's um that's in europe yeah so no card no app like at first glance if any you know bank execs look at that they'll be like what it makes no sense but um but it, you know it doesn't make any sense well jason mr but bank then- exec <laughs> But exactly. Neither does neither does Snapchat. Neither does TikTok. To various people, it, there is a generational point here, which it might not make sense. But you're not the person it's supposed to make sense to, um, and it could make sense to some other people. So I think it's a really important point. Well, I, I guess just from a you know usability design perspective, I mean, you know, we've seen chat, and it's amazingly useful in some particular contexts. But when it comes to discoverability, when it comes to remembering what the commands are, when it comes to a whole host of things, it just doesn't work because we've just not got AI machine learning to that level yet. So, um, so for me, it's a it's an oddity, and it's an interesting thing. But there are reason, reasons people have graphical interfaces, and there are reasons that the Amazon Echo has evolved to having a screen on it, because actually, you know, screens and the display of data are just super useful, and you just can't do those with chat interfaces straight off. Rant over, slash, end rant. <laughs> There's a guy who's built a few apps in his day. Um, already, I'm going to move us to the next story um, after that sort of mic drop there from uh, the one and only Jason Bates. Um, this one is from <laughs> Finextra, uh, and it's about Klarna partnering with Raisin to opening savings accounts in Germany. So in a first for Klarna and available exclusively to Raisin's customers in Germany, the new products include an overnight money account with an interest rate of 0.35% or 35 bips, if you're a banker nerd. Um, the Klarna deposit products operating from overnight terms of up to 48 months are accessible through a completely online process via uh, Raisin's Veltsparen. Um, 
we talked a lot about Klarna as being kind of at that um, front end of the point of sale context. And, you know, Raisin's a really interesting business and they've built this deposit marketplace uh, and they, they seem to be trying to take that to the US. But Klarna has a banking license and people forget that. So is this just them funding their balance sheet with a really interesting way to find it? Or is there is there more going on here? Gemma, what, what, we do, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it's interesting because um, obviously, the, the again, the, the experience that we're having of Klarna at the moment, we're seeing lots of um, adverts on train stations. Obviously, we're not physically seeing them at the moment. Um, but, you know, they're really trying to focus on capturing the hearts and minds of the end consumer. So at the same time, as you said, they do have a banking license and they are going to want to try and get a greater share of the wallet of their customers. Um, and so this this type is, is a very, very interesting one. But I just think I just think at the same time, the, the this this wave that they've been riding on um, in terms of, you know, buy now and pay later, um, just to put it in context, just give somebody, some people some insight, you know, I advise government on um, the, the establishment of the UK's 10-year strategy um, to establish, to basically improve the UK's financial well-being. And, and I know that we're talking about this internationally, but I think this is a growing trend internationally, which is around making sure that people really can sleep well at night, that understand where their money's going. And I think that while this type is really good, I also think that there may be a wave of pressure around how they advertise in the right way to try and say to people, um, of course, you know, you can buy now and you can manage your payments better, but it shouldn't encourage you to buy now if you can't afford it. And that will cause, you know, mental health problems later on as well. So it's just just an interesting trend, I think, that's worth mentioning from a consumer perspective um, that may affect a business model later on. Yeah, that affordability check has always been the issue with buy now, pay later, hasn't it? In in terms of uh, you might uh, be doing a quote unquote low ticket item, so you can do a soft credit check where you don't do the affordability check. But who? How do you know anything about this person? Then? And and actually, I think Freddie might have something to say about that. Maybe there are ways to know something about that person, Freddie. Yeah. Um, no. I. I mean, obviously, the the friction traditionally in performing an affordability check, a full affordability check. Uh, has been prohibitive because you know the, the these buy now pay to, pay later schemes are always at checkout and you know customers will always take the path of least resistance and you know so often that's putting in the last three digits on the back of your credit card strip so you know the ability to use something like open banking to streamline affordability assessment in the context of still having a really fast um, payment and credit option at checkout is, is hugely exciting and um, you know that that's something we're heavily involved with as a business I do think this this is quite interesting as a a perfect example of that bundling Jason was talking about earlier, you know, Klarna has a really good um, sort of core user base, particularly in the um, 18 to 24. I don't know if that what, what that's called anymore, but, you know, the, the younger generation and especially since we've been youths. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially since we've been on, on lockdown, that's been, I, I read that that's been, that's been growing hugely. So encouraging them, uh, encouraging them to save can only be a good thing. And um, just to, to pick up Gemma's point, I, I believe that, uh, trying to get two million more people saving as one of those maps ten uh, year ten year goals. So uh, hopefully building towards that. Um, I had a separate question on Klarna that um, I don't know maybe someone can answer. Um, I uh, I got a uh, an answer wrong in a pub quiz quite recently because I I said that Snoop Dogg is called Smooth Dogg and I can't actually remember if he's still called Smooth Dogg and affiliated to Klarna and I was very annoyed um, to get that wrong. But maybe you can put it right publicly for me. I have no idea, but what I can say is if you've not seen the Smooth Dog videos, you need to. If you're listening to this podcast, wherever you are, whether you're gardening or, or, or whatever you're doing, pause it, Google Smooth Dog, watch that video, then come back to the podcast because it's worthwhile. So I don't know the answer. Does anybody know? You know, my favorite uh, Snoop, uh, Snoop Dog video recently, it was on Twitter. 
of he'd had a really bad day. So he went to his car and he's listening to music and it's the title track of Frozen. And he just sits there sort of like chilling out to uh, Frozen. And he's, he's kind of doing it with his eyes and he's like, yeah. And it's like, it's just the perfect moment. It's the perfect thing I needed to see. Snoop Dogg listening to Frozen, like, let it go, let it go. He was like, he was there. It's worth seeing. It's, sometimes he just, I think at one point he says to the camera and goes, sometimes you just got to let it go. And, and uh, <laughs> I think that's so spot on. But, but speaking of letting go, let's let that thread go and get back to the story briefly. Um, Lois, um, this is interesting that Klarna isn't offering this product directly with the Klarna sort of um, distribution arm. You don't log into a Klarna website and buy this product. You're getting it from a savings marketplace. So not unlike going to comparethemarket.com or any price comparison website, uh, Risen is a deposit marketplace, but also gives you a front end to manage that deposit. So they're a really interesting um, sort of um, organization in that sense. And so it's not Klarna building a front end for its customers. Do you, do you think there's something in that? Do you think there's something interesting about why they've not done that? And does that mean that they are simply using this to lower the cost of funding their lending operations? Or is it something that Klarna wants to do longer term? Mm. It's hard to tell, isn't it? Because I, I personally see Klarna as quite an ambitious organization. They certainly don't shy away from a challenge. Um, and we've seen that in various endeavors that they've launched. You know, um, They go back to Germany frequently, as we've said, you know, a society that loves to save, but also one that loves cash. <laughs> Not necessarily the place that you would go to, um, but Klarna do continually do that kind of stuff. I think I think it goes back to the points that Gemma and Jason have both made today about, you know, constellations and collaboration. And, you know, in general, just I think Klarna's not afraid to give something a go. Um, maybe it's simply a case of this being the quickest way to launch this kind of product. Um, and, and it's just an efficiency thing. Yeah, I mean, go to where the customers already are rather than trying to um, trying to bring them to you is, is an interesting point. Um, I, we're going to move on as we're getting close to the end of the show. Um, we're just going to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover. So there's so much happening this week, and, and this isn't even all of it. Um, we can't cover all of them, but this deserved a bit of a shout out. Uh, Jason, do you want to start? Sure. So story one, Uber Africa launches Uber Cash with Flutterwave. So Uber's launching Uber Cash uh, digital wallet uh, feature in sub-Saharan Africa through a partnership with San Francisco-based Nigerian-founded fintech firm, that's a mouthful, Flutterwave. The arrangement allows riders to top up Uber wallets using dozens of remittance partners active on Flutterwave's pan-African network. So Uber Cash will go live this week and next to Uber's ride hail operations of South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, Uganda, Ghana, Ivory Coast and Tanzania. Interesting stuff. People talk about Flutterwave being striped for Africa, so um, credit to those guys. Shout out to them. All right, uh, next story came from TechCrunch. Uh, BlackRock has backed Trustly, uh, the bank transfer payments platform now valued at over a billion dollars. So a startup from Sweden has built a platform to make it easy and competitive for merchants to accept bank transfers 
as it is to take card payments to complete online transactions has raised a significant round of funding. Again, big theme around bank transfers this week. The deal values the company, which is profitable and has had revenues of more than 150 million US dollars last year at over a billion. And it will give BlackRock uh, and others participating in the investment a minority share in the business. The system is as secure as an individual's own banking interface, which will typically use two-factor authentication, as we know. So it's very much account-to-account payments. It also integrates with folks like WorldPay, PPRO, Rapid, and others that use the uh, services to integrate a number of payment options through a single API. Uh, Jason? So we go across the world. Uh, Tonic Financial, a two-year-old startup in the Philippines, said on Monday it's raised $21 million in a new financing round to launch its digital bank aimed at Southeast Asian market by September this year. They recently received a license to operate a digital bank in the Philippines and said that they'll commercially launch it in the third quarter of this year. Uh, In several South Asian markets, much of the population remains unbanked, up to 70% in the Philippines, and startups are racing to fill the void. But interestingly, most of them are serving startups and other small and medium businesses and not individuals. So Tonic is is hoping to take aim at that. It estimates that the retail savings market in the Philippines is worth $140 billion, yeah, B, and the Southeast Asian nation also represents a $100 billion opportunity in unsecured consumer lending. Because, of course, we have to take an economy and, you know, lend to it. Lend to the entire um, market uh, in one go uh, by founding a challenger bank. Uh, but no, credit to them. that uh, The Philippines is a massive, massive opportunity for financial inclusion. And uh, it seems like uh, they're getting the challenger bank bug. So shout out to those guys. Um, all right. Uh, story from Finance Feeds. The FCA has imposed a £37.8 million fine on Commerce Bank London for AML failures, anti-money laundering, of course. Um, the uh, London branch uh, of Commerce Bank apparently failed to implement adequate anti money laundering systems and controls between October 2012 and September 2017. The FCA's investigation identified failings in several areas, including failure to conduct timely periodic due diligence on its clients. Uh, By 1st of March 2017, 1,772 clients were outside uh, overdue update due diligence checks. God, that was hard to say. Uh, Failure to address a number of other issues and put adequate procedures in place when undertaking customer due diligence was also cited. Commerce Bank London's undertaken apparently a significant remediation exercise, uh, which is now apparently complete. Alrighty, our and finally story this week is about Well, it's about participating in IPOs of humans you believe in. This is humanipo.app. The new site allows you to invest in people you think will be successful. uh, As their personal value and time, based loosely on an hourly rate, increases, so does your investment. So from the website... Time is a high liquidity asset with proven demand. The human IPO exchange is an open market where any participant is able to liquidate his or her human equity holdings. Market dynamics correlates with the human capital dynamics of its users. Wow. Um, anyone? I mean, the wording, the wording sounds a little bit like human trafficking. I mean, there's, there's I mean, I have a real issue with the language and how it's described. Um, and I think the only thing that I, I mean, look, I think a lot of this is done already. You know, ultimately, you tend to back companies because you back their leaders. Um, you also measure success sometimes in terms of followers on social media, which they then monetize. Um, but look, if you if you take this out and extrapolate it out, um, who's, who are you going to short? You know, who, who, who are the ones that actually you think are going to be falling as well? So I think there's a lot of, you know, 
unintended consequences of the back of this, but it's very interesting. I think when I first started reading it, I was thinking back to Bowie bonds, which were when David Bowie sold his entire back catalogue and all of the albums he was going to make in the future and said, basically, give me the money now and we'll IPO this thing. Uh, but actually reading into this, they use a lots of really expansive global IPO language where really it's a buy 10 hours of my time now that you can use at some point in the future. And uh, as I get more experience and and I do better things, that time will be worth more. And at some point in the future, you'll be, you'll be able to call back on that IOU. And it's like, that's quite interesting. You know, it's uh, uh, especially actually... Um, when you compare it with um, with the voucher schemes that we've been trying to uh, uh, to put together uh, to help businesses through COVID, you know, let's actually sell some product and things now so that people can call them later and it helps with your cash flow. So I can kind of see it. It's almost uh, like pay me, prepay me for work. And at some point in the future, you can either swap those hours with someone else who might pay you more or you can use the hours. Um, but but. Within that, wow, there's so much complexity for how that would work, how you police it, whether you'll ever get those hours from me, all kinds of things. So I don't know. It's an interesting concept, but the but the implementation of it seems fraught. Yeah, it's dangerous, isn't it? This I think this one functions more like an equity than a bond. So there's an um, NBA star called Spencer Dinwiddie who uh, had created a bond off the back of his uh, kind of NBA contract that allowed him to claim $13.5 million up front um, and investors would receive a 4.95% uh, return as he would draw down on his NBA contract, which kind of makes sense. You've seen this with sports stars for some time. Just very few of them have offered that out to the public. Uh, this is the other way around in that it's, it functions more like a security. You're buying shares in the person, and the more successful they do, the more cash flow they generate, the more of a dividend from that cash flow you would you would look to receive. So in theory, it's kind of interesting for an individual to manage their own cash flow. But my goodness, um, the ways this could go wrong, uh, just, just thinking about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, Lois, so who, who do you wish you'd invested in? You got any favorites, or, or who would you short? Um, I think Gemma asked that question, but I, I really do want to play with that one. It could be fun. Um, so I actually didn't know about the NBA star stuff, but that is very fascinating. I'll look it up. Um, I don't know loads about sports, but I do know about politics. And I know that if I could invest in people, I should have invested in Marcus Rashford when he made his debut for Manchester United Woo in 2015, <laughs> because he's really come through this week. Hey, funnily enough, that that is a thing. There are like these sports markets now and sports stars markets where people are, are spending real money on like indexes of how stars are performing and their relative value and their relative contracts that sort of track it. It's all getting very strange, Jason. Well, well, well I mean, arguably, that's what VCs do. I mean, they back the rider, not the horse, you know, and, and actually when you've had entrepreneurs that have been through a few things, then there are plenty of VCs who will essentially tell that person if you come up with a great idea bring it to me and you know we'll make it happen so you know i can kind of see that that there's a um you know there's some kinds of version of this this around but i don't know is it really a mass market offering yeah it, it, there's something about that back the rider not the horse talent thing that i think is is kind of important for anybody even not vcs that they could potentially learn from vcs of like how do you get those people with experience that have got that track record and how do you invest in them rather than buying from a brand i think that's an interesting thing to to, to pivot around freddie any thoughts uh, i did i did think this was a wind up when i read it um but uh 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, the, the point on VCs is a good one because, you know, typically VCs diversify and, and founders don't, right? So, you know, founders put all of their eggs in one basket and, and VCs, you know, get to spread. And I, I did sort of wonder whether there was something to be had where founders help each other by sort of cross uh, cross investing between each other and, and, you know, sort of spreading their own risk. And maybe this, you know, it sort of fringes on that. But um, there, there's so much ambiguity, you know, if, if someone's super successful and, and you know, doesn't want to play ball. Of this company doesn't exist in ten years. It, it seems like quite a high risk bet. Um, in terms of in terms of who I'd back, objectively, I guess in my lifetime, a certain Mr. Bezos would probably be the obvious choice. Uh, just just thinking of money terms. You go go for the king of money. Uh, that's, <laughs> a, that's that's a great title that he didn't need. Um, Jason, who, who would be yours? Well, I think you know it. Hey, investments are super easy in retrospect. You just pick anyone who's the most successful, you know, people in the world, and you go, "Oh, I'd pick them." Um, I, I do think that that talent spotting uh, is the key skill of the twenty first century. You know, we've moved from that factory mentality of "I just need someone to turn up and crank that handle" to a world of you know ambiguous knowledge work where the problems are changing, and you need someone who's uh, an architect and great with people and technology and this and that and you know can make it all happen um uh, and i and it's something we often talk to banking clients about how actually their their paradigm around people and hr is broken because someone from hr says well that's out of the band for that particular role i can get 20 people in india for that and and that sort of superstar mentality thing there are 10x engineers, 10x uh, designers, 10x product people, 10x entrepreneurs that are just way above and beyond what, you know, what you can buy on the market as a commodity. So that, you know, the moving away from people as commodity to people as um, as being able to, to perform way above the rest of the market, um, I guess moving away from the IPO angle, but but looking at that sort of it is around finding those individuals and how you recognize them when rather than saying, we've got this role, 20 people apply, great, I'll, I'll pick you because you fit. Like, it, it just doesn't quite work. Startups don't don't hire like that, yet big, big banks and big insurers and, and whoever do. And then they wonder why they can't get that and keep the, the, that sort of talent. And it moves, I think, more to that sports team mentality where you're looking for somebody that has that perfect fit into the sports team and can do the other stuff that you can't, but the sort of clicks and, and sort of fits. But you didn't say who, so you still have to give me a person. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, any any of the of the Fang most successful entrepreneurs, I think. Yeah. Gemma, are you going to go for that as well? Are you going to go for something different? Who, who would you be? Yeah, the, the, well, the funny thing is, what I really want to do is find a complete underdog that's made it big. But I mean, yeah, looking, looking backwards is obviously easy. I think the more interesting question is, who do we think who do we think is going to come out on top going forward? And I, yeah, I'm still thinking about that one. Okay, well, yeah, that's why you got to listen to the next fintech inside of the Amazon <laughs> because we'll, we'll push you for that answer uh, and we'll make sure it happens. For me, it's got to be Elon. I still think he's not even started um, what he's going to do. The guy's the guy's going to own space, and <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's huge. So go on, Elon, save humanity, get us to Mars, do the rest, keep keep it up. See what what would have been an interesting bet would be Trump. Like, would you would you really like see that uh, you know that trajectory? Uh, uh, on the on the days of the apprentice would you really have like you know made that bet 
Yeah, prediction markets um, are also a thing that we can cover on one of these unfinely stories one of these days. We could go about this forever. We're having far too much fun, and I'm sure uh, our listeners have got uh, other other tasks to get on with. So we'll, we'll uh, wrap up this uh, week's news show. Thank you very much for a great show to all of our guests. Uh, Gemma, where can people find out more about you? So you can follow me on all social media on at GC Godfrey. You can message me on LinkedIn, and I'm also taking on some advisory roles. So get in touch if you're a high growth business and you want to make sure that you achieve your business goals. <laughs> Absolutely. Lois, how about you? So if anyone's interested in Nationwide's Venture Fund, they can email me. I'm lois at nbsventures.co.uk. Or anyone who's interested in getting access to venture capital more generally, whether as a career or a funding mechanism, uh, should check out my other podcast, Associated. Absolutely. Do check that out, people. Check out Associated. Available on all good podcast clients, I assume? Of course. Associated it is. All righty. Freddie, how about you? Uh, So our business website is creditkudos.com and I am Fred Kelly on Twitter and just about everything else other than TikTok and all that stuff that I don't really understand. (laughs) Indeed, does anybody. All right, as for me, you can find me at SYTaylor or you can check us out at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please remember to subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make the show better and it also helps other people find the show. So if you enjoyed the conversation about uh, talent spotting, then definitely, definitely do that. Uh, Speaking of which, if you know somebody who loves fintech uh, who isn't listening to Fintech Insider, make sure to pass the pod along and tell them about the show. If you have any suggestions or feedback, find us on social media, search for 11FS, uh, search for Fintech Insider, or email us directly, podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you very much, and goodbye for now. Have a good week.